0: Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, with host Ranger Doug. And here's Ranger Doug.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 31st program and our 16th in this series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. We are watching the war changing at this point. Uh, We're unsure as to where it's going, but our guests tonight will highlight what they understand about what's happening. And as we see, much material has descended upon Ukraine It is trying desperately to accumulate and assimilate this equipment and then train to be able to use it and supply it with the munitions necessary to make it work. And that's the tricky part. The world has contributed a lot of hardware But there is only so much that you can do to train up to use that hardware effectively. And sometimes becoming proficient with various systems means that you have to have had a culture that dates back decades to when the equipment first was fielded to be able to handle later more sophisticated variants of that equipment. So uh, we'll see our participants tonight discussing aspects of this. Be alert for that. So without further ado, let me introduce to you our guests for tonight. They are Dr. Brian Downing. Dr. Dave Johnson, and Jason Black, all of whom have been with us before. Brian, give a short background sketch, please. Brian
2: Downing here, three years in the Army in the early 70s, reached the august height of acting Jack Buck sergeant. After that, uh, went to college and graduate school, Georgetown and University of Chicago, respectively. Taught college for a while, but uh, became sort of an independent writer after that. Works best for me. Back to you.
1: And Brian, it would be fair to say that you spent a good bit of time in that famous place we call Vietnam.
2: Uh, I did one year there. I was uh, assigned to paramilitary, let's see, PSDFs, they were called, People Self-Defense Forces and Regional Popular Forces. They were irregular militias. Uh, interesting thing there. I was I was in between those troops, the Special Forces Officers and regular American troops, and I just developed a good eye for discipline, order, cohesion, that sort of thing. It was an interesting experience.
1: Great. That was an element we would call the rough puff, right? That's what they were called, rough puffs. Regional forces, popular forces. In my spare time, I moonlight as a historian, although I'm just a dealer in this card game. You guys are the experts. But, sir, thank you very much for your service, and we've talked about it before. And then next, Dr. Dave Johnson. Dave, please, over to you.
3: Yeah, I'm uh, Dave Johnson. I spent 25 years in the Army, an in infantry quartermaster and field artillery and the majority in field artillery uh, in the usual places during the Cold War, Germany, Korea, um, did my battalion command in Hawaii. I uh, was fortunate enough the Army sent me to get a Ph.D. in history at Duke. And after I retired in 97, as a colonel, I went to industry for about a year and a half and came to R.A.M., uh, where I've been for you know over 25 years. This month marks my you know 50th year since I joined the Army, and now I've had as much time out of the Army as I've had in it. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave, and we're fortunate that the Army sent you for that PhD as well. Jason Black, sir, you and I have worked together before for quite a while, and uh, while neither of us have a doctorate, I know we have a great deal of practical experience, and I appreciate having you with us tonight. Please give a short background sketch.
4: Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. My name is Jason Black. did 29 years in the Army in infantry, armor, and special forces, uh, and then did five years in the interagency. I've got uh, operational and combat experience in the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the Philippines, and Central and South America. It's great to be here tonight with you guys.
1: Okay. So where do we think Russia and Ukraine are today in the war? Brian, how about you lead off?
2: Well, in the north central area, we're seeing Russian probes around Kharkiv. And west of that, we are seeing Belarusian troops massing along the border with Ukraine. Uh, I believe these to be feints. They are efforts to divert Ukrainian troops away from the Donbass. And I don't think it's working. There's less activity in the Black Sea. Last week, we talked about uh, a lot of Russian naval activity there. That has gone down quite a bit probably because a lot of uh, anti-ship missiles have arrived in Ukraine. And uh, most of the Russian Navy is well offshore these days. Up in the Donbass War, that's where the main effort is. The Russians are making incremental gains around Severodonetsk. It's back and forth, street fighting block by block. The Ukrainians are putting up a very tough fight, taking back a few blocks every now and then. Uh, but I think, all in all, they're fighting a defense in depth. They would be willing to give up several Not easily, not without effort, but they'll fall back on the next city, this Chance, which is a, a city that President Zelensky visited a few days ago. That's how close he got up to the front lines. Other Russian probes in the Donbass area have not really gone anywhere. There's been an effort for pincer movements, large and small. I think they've both failed. Stalemate, it's an artillery war, pretty much, that's where we're going. In the land bridge, that area running from the Crimean Peninsula east to Russian, historically Russian territory, not just the area they stole in 2014, Ukrainians are driving north from Kherson. This is endangering the Russian position in that city and their entire position west of the Dnieper River. If they want to establish a land bridge going off west to... uh, Odessa and beyond, they're going to have to hold it the, the west bank of the Dnipro River. There's partisan activity in Herzen, there's partisan activity along the land bridge east of Herzen, and in another major city, Melitopol. Uh, partisan warfare usually leads to vicious reprisals, and the Russians are certainly capable of that. The fighting there presents Russia with a dilemma, Do they give up ground in the land bridge, or do they take troops away from the Donbass? And there's some evidence that they are taking some troops away from the Donbass. And back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Again, uh, Brian, thank you very much for that, and we're fortunate that you have your Ph.D. from those acclaimed schools. And now over to our next Ph.D., Dave. How about you, sir?
3: I'm going to hire, as usual, Brian gave a great lay down of what's going on. I'm going to kind of pull it up a bit. There's a couple of very good articles today. One is in the New Yorker, and another one's in the the Independent from the UK. Both of them are highlighting the fact that what's going on in Donbass is very different than what went on near Keith. There's an interview with the Brigadier General, who's one of the deputy commanders of the forces on the Eastern Front. And what he did when he described the shift in Russian tactics, he said, "If before they simply marched in large columns." Now they have started to actually fight. The Russian army has split its portion into smaller groups, which it uses, along with a sizable fleet of drones to identify and target Ukrainian positions, hitting with artillery and airstrikes. When a particular zone or village has been effectively leveled, ground troops, which are a mixture of regular Russian soldiers, Wagner mercenaries, and fighters mobilized from the Russia-backed separatist territories in Donetsk and Luhansk, move in to try and seize the rebel. The article from the UK is based on what is obviously an intelligence report that someone shared with a reporter. And it's talking about the huge disparity in the number of artillery systems and the ranges of the system that the Russians have relative to Ukraine. The big issue here, uh, I think we forget sometimes, they had essentially equivalent systems. Uh, The Ukrainians. Army has gone through you know, what it had in its stocks or is rapidly depleting them and is essentially left with 152 rounds to fight longer range uh, rocket systems. And they're simply outranged and they're outnumbered. Uh, and there's no way to replace those munitions unless they come from former Warsaw Pact countries or we give them something to replace, which is why HIMARS and MRS are so important to this fight. Back to you,
1: Ranger Thank you, Dave. That's a great summary also, and and you've added uh, a great deal of depth to what we're doing. So, Jason, how about you, sir?
4: I won't uh, be redundant in uh, what uh, Brian and uh, Dave uh, spoke about, but just two interesting things that that I think are are transpiring out there right now is that uh, uh, the Russian-backed occupation authorities along that strip of land from Donbass down to Crimea are, are having a difficult time politically integrating the governments and the services there into the Russian Federation. They've already started that process uh, at the local level, but there is no kind of unifying occupation authority that's coordinating those efforts. And so I think that's causing them problems. And as uh, Brian had mentioned, the Russians are having a difficult time balancing their combat power between offensive operations and stability and security operations. And that dilemma is going to continue to plague them. Uh, And then they've also intensified their psychological and information operations against Ukrainian forces. There are now reports that they are targeting uh, Ukrainian soldiers via messaging, uh, all of the commercial messaging apps, Telegram, Viber, Signal, WhatsApp, and letting them know, hey, we know who you are, we know where your family is, and there will be repercussions if you continue to fight against us. So that's kind of uh, an interesting development and uh, incredibly sinister. We'll we'll see whether that has any impact or not. I doubt it will be effective. But um, that, that is a new uh, avenue that the Russians are pursuing. It's so interesting stuff. And then I think they're having a difficult time uh, pulling recruits out of those, uh, out of Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. And uh, they're reporting demonstrations in those areas as people reject uh, the Russian approach to join them and fight uh, in the continued offensive in Ukraine. Thanks.
1: Great. Thank you. That's a, a great summary, each of you. Uh, I'd like to throw this question to you then. Uh, We seem to be saying that we see that Russian tactics have improved and they're working toward what one might call combined arms uh, with different pieces, uh, fighting, uh, attempting to integrate uh, artillery and uh, various disparate forces. But uh, does anyone believe that they're on the way to achieving a combined arms approach, or is this just simply an improvisation based on the circumstance and necessity? Over to you guys.
3: Can I hop in here, Ranger Doug? Absolutely. So I think you know, the, one of the classic studies we're making with the Russians is viewing them through our eyes. I wrote an article a few weeks ago about this, um, and I think we're assuming because they're not as adept as we are, or we think we are, quite frankly, at combined arms operations at this scale, that they're just floundering around. They've reverted back to what they did with the same kind of troops they had in World War II, which is conquer with artillery, occupy with infantry. And it's slow and grinding. It is combined arms, but not in the way we think about it, synchronized. It's more of a World War One, pulverized and advanced approach. Um, just because it doesn't look like what we do indicates to me that the Russians understand you know, the inherent challenges of the force they have, and they've adapted to make that useful. Uh, so I don't... Combined arms and leadership and all these other things we talk about so much are in many ways a way for us to avoid talking about you know, what they actually are doing and how effective they're doing it and hoping that they will fail because they're not able to do combined arms. Back to you, Ranger Dutt.
1: Would anyone else care to jump on that?
3: Uh, Brian Downing here. I'll uh, just
2: speculate that a lot of the success, or at least some of the success, has been based on the Wagner troops, the mercenary groups that uh, Russia uses all around the world, pretty much. They have, uh, they're better paid, they have an esprit de corps, they have experience fighting together in North Africa and the Middle East. And I believe they're in that key city of Severodonetsk. Now, they're the best troops, and they're getting mauled. So this uh, Russian success might be short-lived. Back to you.
1: Great. Thank you. So what I see is that they have decided to improvise, and that if it's grinding, they can improve under fire, and it really doesn't matter because as long as they're able to dominate an enemy locally— they can be successful.
3: Ranger Doug, let me interject one thing. I don't think this is improvisation. I think this is what they do. As a matter of course when a coup de main like they did in Czechoslovakia failed against Keeb. They revert back to the the artillery first, followed with infantry, slow, methodical, and not pretty. But it's not improvised. It's what, just what they do. Back to you.
1: And where I'm coming to this from is that you know we train to synchronize. They began in a haphazard way where we in previous programs said that this might even have been something where they sent folks in for the idea that they would actually force the Ukrainians to disclose intentions and they would perfect their, their battle methods on the way in in periods of bad weather and so forth. And what I'm sensing is and what I'm suggesting is, yes, of course, it's what they do. But they have a kind of an ethos in an approach to warfare, but it isn't necessarily something that they're organizing with people training behind the lines. Would you agree with that? It's not Zhukov retraining the army before Kursk, is it?
3: No, but it is the army we saw that wasn't with three years of experience in in World War II that went into essentially Czechoslovakia, went into Chechnya, went into Afghanistan, you know, it has not got that three years of experience to have adapted and gotten lots better. So what I'm saying is that kind of the baseline for Russian military operations is heavy fires, conquered by fire. You occupy the rubble with, with whatever capability of troops you have. It's not highly synchronized. It's on and off. But they're using what we would think of as you know operational level missiles against tactical formations they is shooting Iskanders, which is their principal long-range, medium-range missile. At things we wouldn't, sh- you know, we'd be reluctant to shoot MLRS at. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Yes, and of course, we, we have nothing like the Iskander, do we? A medium-range ballistic missile.
3: Well, we're trying with PRISM, which is going to be the attackless mis- replacement. And that's just starting to come off the, you know, test and evaluation. But it has been a gap for a long time, partly because we signed on the INF Treaty, and while the Russians were cheating, we didn't. Um, but it's a capability that really matters. Back to you, Ranger Dub.
1: Would the last thing that we have that would be the equivalent of the Iskander have been the Lance missile?
3: Um, Lance and Pershing-1, which was only nuclear. Pershing-2 was the origin of the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty. That It really shocked the Russians because we could hit the Soviet Union from inside of Europe in a... You know, in minutes instead of the time it took an ICBM to get there from the States. when um, Reagan put him into Europe. It just changed the dynamic of the, the Soviet calculus. And then we you know, negotiated a bunch of treaties. In uh, and, and the aftermath, two problems. One, China never signed on those treaties. And Russia just didn't play by the rules. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thanks. And I appreciate the discussion on this point, because it's important to start off, I think, uh, with the right background, and we've done so. So let's move on. So at this point, then, having laid the groundwork for where the war is right now, what do we think the war aims are of Russia, Mr. Putin, and Ukraine, and Mr. Zelensky? And that will be then, Dave, would you please take the lead?
3: So again, I think Putin is very opportunistic. We don't know exactly what his war aims are, but I think he's banking on... Exhausting the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian military forces, and so he's waiting to see how things work out. I think partly, um, it's pretty clear that he wants that portion of Ukraine. Uh, he's put a lot of effort into it in the land bridge in the south. Uh, as for the for Zelensky. Um, you know, he's in the box we've been talking about of. You know We've called for this enormous sacrifice by our countrymen, and we've given up so much. We've got a large part of the population displaced. We have a lot of POWs, which is an interesting point in this article. It said this is one of the bargaining points with the Russians is how do we exchange prisoners? Well, Ukraine has about 500 Russians. Uh, Russia has almost 5,000 Ukrainian POWs. So that is a bargaining chip is becoming less and less useful. But I think he's in a place where he cannot politically say, we're going to cede what we've lost. But there is pressure. Uh, Henry Kissinger the other day raised a lot of hackles by saying they're just going to have to settle on where, the you know, give the Russians what they've got and go status quo antebellum. Um Macron's trying to... You know, use the aftermath of World War One and the Versailles Treaty, where it was an onerous peace imposed on the Germans that led to the rise of the Nazis. So there's starting to be, in the West at least, kind of different views about how this ends. Uh, and, but, you know, it, it, I think the best advice I've heard yet is President Biden said it ends when Zelensky decides it's over. It's, you know, his country and he's got to make these decisions.
4: Back to you, Ranger up.
1: Great answer, Dave. I really appreciate it. Jason, over to you.
4: Okay, hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. I'll start with uh, the Russians. Yeah, I think Putin is counting on the West to lose patience with a long war and uh, eventually perhaps um, withdraw some of their support for Ukraine, especially as uh, energy, natural gas uh, prices continue to rise and there's an energy crisis in, in Western Europe. And then also as uh, the conflict there, as the war there impacts the global food supply uh perhaps not in Western Europe and, and, and North America, but certainly in Africa in uh, Asia and perhaps in Central and South America as well. So I, I believe he believes that time is on his side and he needs to continue a, a steady grind. Unfortunately, uh, and as we kind of have discussed in, in previous uh, episodes, what we're seeing on the ground now is, is that they're having to make tough decisions about uh, how to manage their combat power, and and uh, holding that land bridge that they've captured is now becoming a challenge for them, and it's on some level beginning to hamper their ability to conduct offensive operations in, in other areas. So uh, uh, that will probably drive uh, uh, the Russians at some point to – to have to kind of take a tactical or an operational pause and and secure what they've got because uh, the the Ukrainians are not going to allow them to continue to to retain that terrain there without a fight. Uh, On the Ukrainian side, uh, Zelensky has has very clearly stated that uh, he he does not intend to negotiate or cede any kind of uh, territory to the Russians in any kind of peace negotiations, but that peace negotiations are not... uh, Out of of the the realm of possible. So uh, it will be interesting to see. This is transitioning to what some people are calling a long war. I would just call it a slow grind. Um, And it will come down to a test of wills. Uh, But neither side, uh, the war is not going the way either side thought it would go. And uh, that is uh, causing both sides to kind of reconsider and reposition their resources. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you, Jason. And Brian, over to you, sir.
4: Uh,
2: I'll just add that uh, Peter the Great's birthday, and we're not celebrating it, but Putin is, and he uh, noted that uh, Peter the Great retook the Baltic area from Sweden in the Great Northern War 300 years ago. Well, you know, that's not just a meaningless birthday observation. It, I think, represents his goals of... Uh, restoring the old Soviet Empire it's very unrealistic but uh, the misinformation up and down the Russian chain of command must be uh, tremendous Uh, they must think that they're doing a lot better than they are and they are doing better than they were a few weeks ago but uh, there are still serious troubles the Ukrainians uh, they're fighting the best the uh, Russian army can put in front of them and they're mauling them The Russians are taking very heavy casualties. They've already had uh, morale and discipline problems. Uh, Ukraine probably hopes that they they will worsen, and I think they will. And this will present opportunities uh, to advance in the Donbass, but probably more importantly in the land bridge. Back to you, Ranger
1: Doc. Thank you, Brian. Great rundown, too. Let's take a quick commercial, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio Hour, program number 31, the 16th in our series, Russia moves into Ukraine.
0: You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847 754 4667. That number again, 847 754 4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer.
1: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over
0: 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour.
1: And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We move on into the world at large with a consideration of the activities and or effects on the U.S., NATO, the EU, the world, including the PRC, anything else. And that question will be led by Jason. Jason, over to you.
4: Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, Looking at noticeable activities uh, from the U.S., uh, predominantly, and I'll lump the U.K. in with, with us. Uh, you see kind of a, an ideological shift and a willingness now to provide some some more high-end weapons to the Ukraine that perhaps before were considered to be provocative uh, or inflammatory. So HIMARS, uh, medium-range rocket systems that are incredibly precise, the MLRS systems that the UK uh, has, has ponied up, and then the M777 155-millimeter howitzers that we've provided in, in a large quantity. I think there are almost 100 of those. Uh, In the Ukraine now, Uh, don't quote me on that. But so you see uh, between the US and the UK, uh, a a short tactical range, indirect fire solution, a medium range solution with MLRS. And then uh, I I would say a longish, mediumish range with the HIMARS system. And all of those are kind of high-tech weapon systems. And so I'm sure there are concerns in in, in the U.S. and certainly NATO and the EU about technology transfer and the risk of some of that stuff falling into Russian hands. But uh, I'm pleased to see that we're leaning into that because to date, although we've provided quite a few um, shoulder-fired anti-tank guided missile systems and uh, shoulder-fired surface-to-air missile systems, none of that has really been decisive. It has just bought... Ukraine more time uh, in the fight and allow them to inflict um, more attrition uh, on the Russians. Uh, NATO and the EU continue to to wring their hands uh, as they look to perhaps provide support and increase defense spending without provoking the Russians and causing uh, Putin to shut off the gas supply to Western Europe. And we're 90 days from the cold weather coming in in Western Europe. Uh, I, I noted that uh, the Danes have signed up to provide, uh, I believe it's Harpoon missiles, and, and I don't know if they've actually fielded those yet or if they're in the process, but uh, good on them because that impacts uh, what I think we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is the export of the Ukrainian grain harvest and, and that impact on uh, the global food supply. So that'll be important. All of those systems require a lot of training. Uh, they're not simple to operate, and so I think the biggest challenge is, is giving the Ukrainians the skills and the, and the training to be able to use those systems effectively. But perhaps that will on some level offset some of that uh, Russian firepower that uh, Dave Johnson was talking about and, and uh, hopefully allow them to at least blunt some of that uh, and, and buy them uh, some freedom of action back. The world, uh, I really feel like uh, outside of uh, perhaps NATO, EU, uh, and the United States uh, that that Ukraine and the conflict, the war in the Ukraine in Ukraine has uh slipped off front and center stage, and and the world is now focused on the increased cost of gasoline at the pump, energy, food shortages, and Ukraine has kind of taken a a second row seat to that. Uh So that'll be interesting to watch, and of course China always watches to see the level and the duration of our resolve in support of Ukraine as uh they look towards uh, Southeast Asia, and of course, Taiwan. Thank you, Doug.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jason, for that uh, enlightening rendition. Uh, Brian, please, over to you, sir, on the same question.
2: Well, on the matter of uh, NATO activity, I'd like to point out German inactivity. They talk about delivering anti-aircraft systems, tanks, armored vehicles. They never quite do it. The chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has a great deal of he has a coalition, and most coalitions aren't very strong these days. Uh, there's a lot of anti-war sentiment, ultra-passivism, and war guilt throughout there, and it's holding things back, unfortunately. Uh, Schultz is so uh, so unreliable that in Ukraine there's uh, an expression to Schultz that means to promise something but not to deliver. It uh, could spread to our country. We'll have to see. Uh, <clears throat> Iran. Iran is removing a lot of monitoring devices from the uranium enrichment centers, Natanz and Fordow. That's pretty ominous. They've been going up towards weapons grade, but I don't think they've ever really wanted to do that. I think they were just threatening and trying to drive a wedge between the United States and the EU. But what's the situation now? Iran cannot rely on Russia to defend it, so they may feel this is the opportunity to build a nuclear weapon. They have the technology, they can get the uh, weapons-grade material pretty quickly, and they probably have the missile delivery
3: systems. Back to you, Ranger Doc.
1: Thank you, Brian. And Dave, over to you then.
3: Yeah, I would just highlight a couple of things. We talk about how the Russians are being mauled by the Ukrainians. Zelensky was on the air the other day and was staying in in the Donbass. They're losing 100 dead a day and around 500 casualties, mostly to artillery fire. So... Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Clausewitz once said essentially to paraphrase, in a war of exhaustion, don't become exhausted first. And I think that's the real challenge for the West is to keep Ukraine in the fight. Um, because they're running low on lots of things. The number of systems we're sending are very high tech, but it's you know, when you add everything we're giving to them and the and the Brits are giving them it's about a battery's worth of MRS I mean they both fire the same system same rounds so that there's a gap there that you know' is going to have to be filled and the real challenge is you know as uh, Jason said is is the West going to keep its head in the game uh, I agree with what you said about the Germans it it sounds good but where's the get parts The other issue is Turkey's recalcitrance about a number of things one there's talk about a essentially a humanitarian breaking of the embargo to get grain out of Ukraine. Um, There's a little-known convention called the Montreux Convention that says commercial shipping can traverse that body of water without peril. Any military shipping has to be approved by Turkey. And that, you know, given their behavior lately, that's just not a given. I'd like to amplify a little bit on what Jason said about food, there's a great report in Axios today It has a graphic that says who relies on what. So places Lebanon gets 81% of its wheat from Ukraine. Madagascar, another place that's really stable, gets 90% of its maize. Niger gets 98% of its sunflower oil. And you just go down the list. Pakistan, 50% of its wheat. So in the West, we're going to be straining about gas prices. In other parts of the world, they're going to be starving. And can the West make up that differential, not just from a humanitarian perspective, but from the perspective of keeping some level of stability that we don't have another Arab spring, which is sparked by a shortage of cooking oil the first time. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: You know, that's a brilliant comment. And in fact, on the last program, I made the analogy that similar to the uh, Pakistani tsunami that began with an earthquake uh, several hundred miles away under the sea and and the tsunami didn't hit for quite a while. People really weren't aware of what was coming. They had experienced before, but you never really know what the wave will look like when it hits the shore, and it caused a great deal of destruction. And I believe that based on what you've mentioned about grain and cooking oil, but also fertilizer that's not being created from fossil fuels that have dropped off in the world supply, and the fact that everybody's busy trying to do all this just-in-time servicing of of, uh, shopping and logistical needs. We really don't know where this is going, but we do know there's a great hole in the world situation right now concerning food and that number of countries are going to find themselves challenged for uh, the ability to sustain their populations with food. And uh, I I believe we're going to see at least uh, by the time of late fall, a very dire situation in a number of places that probably is not only going to lead to some some food insecurity, but it's actually going to lead to a, a lack of actual security and fighting and so forth. So, so that ends that. Let's take a quick commercial and we'll be back in a moment. This is Veterans Radio, our program number 31, the 16th in our series, Russia moves into Ukraine. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline.
4: Uh, you
0: if you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history.
1: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug.
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 31st program, our 16th in the series Russia moves into Ukraine. This brings us then to the question the status of any kind of of peace initiatives, ceasefires, truce, or otherwise. Uh, And that will be uh, Brian to lead us off in that. Over to you, Brian.
2: Uh, The only thing I can see would be some very local ceasefires to arrange prisoner of war swaps. Um, Dave gave the numbers, and they are disproportionate. uh, But nonetheless, there's hope for some sort of exchange. Uh, The Russians sentenced sentenced a Brit and a Moroccan to death. Um, I don't think they'll actually execute them, but I think it's something to... uh, to work into the negotiations for some sort of swap. Back to you, Ranger Doc.
1: Thank you, Brian. Then uh, please take that question, Dave, if you would.
3: Yeah, I pretty much you know, agree with what Brian, Brian had said, say. Um, I guess there's an alarming development that may also affect some of Putin's staying power that will affect negotiations. There's reporting today that the Russian intelligentsia is starting to view this as a war against the West, which has always been Russia's nightmare. And so, you know, we keep hoping there'll be fissures and fractures in the Russian support for the war. Um, If that doesn't materialize or if there's really a backlash that supports Putin and Mother Russia, regardless who's in charge, it's just going to make Putin more intransigent. Uh, And I said, the prisoner ratio is one indication that he's got the strong hand in negotiations. Uh, The fact that he controls territory in Ukraine is the other. And quite frankly, the fact that he seems to be immune from any internal pressure and is blowing off anything the West is doing in the area of sanctions. So I think he is going to do what he wants to do. Zelensky, we talked about already peace negotiations for him are politically difficult, if not impossible, given what they've sacrificed. We already talked about that, but I think there'll be increasing pressure on him to come to some kind of a commendation. A la Henry Kissinger's advice and Macron and, um, while there's still something left of the Ukrainian people. Um, I I just don't know what either one of those you know, leaders is going to do, but this really is in their court. And I think Zelensky's going to feel much more pressure than Putin. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
4: Thank you, Dave. Then Jason, please, over to you. Uh, I agree with Dave on some of that. Macron and um, Kissinger both have said, hey, it's time to negotiate. Um, but I don't believe that Zelensky is in a position to negotiate until he's in a position of advantage tactically on the battlefield. And so kind of at this point in time, Western Europe, the EU, NATO, and the United States uh, probably have a responsibility to continue to support the Ukraine and to increase that support and sustain it over time until Zelensky and and, and Ukraine are in a position of advantage and then perhaps... Um, they will also be in a position of advantage to negotiate on favorable terms. But as long as, as they're not in that position, any negotiations are, are only going to result in uh, Putin achieving some of his uh, initial war aims and being further emboldened to continue his uh, aggression in Ukraine and, and other parts of Europe as well and perhaps uh, other areas. So as long as Putin believes that he's being successful and, and he is attaining some of his goals, maybe not all of them, Ukraine probably is in a position to engage in any kind of negotiations that are going to result in anything but a temporary halt of, of Russian aggression that's only going to resume later on when Putin believes that he's in a, in a position of advantage again.
1: Thank you. Great, Jason. Thank you very much. And we'll move into another commercial at this point. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back in a few minutes. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 31st program, our 16th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of this storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation
1: and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over
0: 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC we're back and here's your host Ranger
1: Dunn and here we are back again thank you for joining us this is Veterans Radio R 2.0 our 31st program our 16th in the series Russia moves into Ukraine this brings us then to the question of logistics as it concerns supply and support of the combatants humanitarian aid for the displaced and prospects for support of regions with potential food insecurity and to take that question the lead will be Dave. Over to you, sir.
3: The data that's out there right now doesn't paint a good picture. I think logistics inside of Ukraine is a challenge, as we're seeing. Although we're offering these weapons and sending them, getting them there and sustaining them in combat is a challenge. There's a report in the paper today. Of, you know They're training MRS platoons because you just don't give this to somebody and say, go fight. Uh, it's not similar how is there one thing, uh, multiple launch rocket system on a platform with you know, digital communications is something else. I think what we're also seeing, although we've wrung our hands and said how bad the Russians are at logistics, a friend of mine did some assessment based on Russian Ministry of Defense data. They don't report what they're doing, but they do take pride in how many things they're doing. So they report their daily number of fire missions by artillery. The average since the 19th of May, the 31st of May, has been 585 fire missions a day. And if you just extrapolate that to how many artillery projectiles that makes, stripping out some of its missile and rocket, they're shooting about 7,000 rounds of artillery a day, and they're not running out. So it tells me they may have problems with delivery, but they have a huge stockpile. And that's not the case with Ukraine. So if this is a war of attrition and exhaustion, you know, the, you know the, the Russians clearly have an advantage there. The advantage Ukraine has is that there's a nascent supply chain that's starting to get stuff to them that they need. The challenge is going to be to continue to sustain that, particularly when it, it may come under fire at transit locations.
4: Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. Then that will bring us to Jason for that question. Jason, over to you.
4: I completely agree with uh, Dave on that. We can continue to send uh, what uh, Charlie Cleveland used to call exquisite munitions to, to Ukraine. But um, at the end of the day, what they really need are lots of one, 152 millimeter howitzer rounds and stuff that's not quite so exquisite. And they're expending that at an at a, at a incredible pace right now. Um, so – Figuring that out is probably more of a, a Ukrainian problem than it is uh, an EU or a NATO problem, because we can get the stuff to the border, but they've got to figure out how to get it to, to the firing systems. Uh, looking at the food uh, and, and the export, uh, apparently uh, Russian foreign minister and, and, and the Turks met on Wednesday for substantial talks about uh, a UN proposal to secure safe shipping lanes through the Black Sea. And uh, what I'm seeing is approximately 20 million tons of grain piled up at the ports on on the Black Sea that uh, can't be exported. That would uh, certainly alleviate some of that uh, global food shortage. Part of that is, uh, part of the problem is uh, Ukraine has mined those ports. Uh, The larger problem, of course, is the Russian fleet there that's that's blocking that. And um, Russia is only talking about that because they see that as a bargaining chip to perhaps loosen some of the sanctions against Russia. And so I'll be interested to see whether they're able to to leverage that and and display some sort of goodwill and turn that into a a, a win story um, while benefiting from a loosening of some of the sanctions that that are hurting their economy right now. Some interesting stuff there. And uh, there's also, I saw a report, uh, Russia is apparently loading up some of its ships with uh, Ukrainian grain and hauling that back to the homeland as well. So, of course, that falls in line with uh, standard tactics, techniques, and procedures, just like uh, Dave had said about their use of firepower to devastate an area, followed by ground maneuver to come in and occupy it. Thanks, Doug.
1: Thank you, Jason. Great answer. Then, Brian, sir, over to you, please.
2: Well, the issue of logistics underscores how badly Russia blundered at the very outset of the war. They blundered any number of ways, but one was not cutting off the supply routes coming in from Poland. The the, the lines bringing in the artillery, the tanks, the ammunition from NATO countries to the front lines. They're still running. The Russians send missiles there uh, to try to hit the depots. They don't do it very well. Their PGMs don't work, and they're running out of them. Uh, Russia is pulling troops and equipment out of the Far East and Kaliningrad to uh, make amends or to supply their troops in Ukraine. Probably shouldn't have to do that. They probably didn't think they had to do that. That's from the Far East or Kutsk, that's what, 2,500 miles or so. Um, At the local level, uh, Russian transportation units are reluctant to go near the front. They are therefore not delivering supplies as expeditiously as they should, nor are they evacuating the wounded as, as expeditiously as they should. On the matter of food, um, I think that's obviously going to be a global issue, and I think it's going to affect China a great deal. China has ooh, 1.4 billion people. They are a net food importer, and uh, they don't want to see rising prices affect their cities. their march back to greatness. <laughs> Furthermore, it's going to hit countries like Iran, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Afghanistan hard. Those are three, four countries that are pretty much in the... Chinese sphere of influence and China does not want to see instability there. They want to keep going. They want to integrate the world into their economy and this is drawing a monkey wrench into it. You could see accordingly China press Russia to do something about grain exports allowing uh, Ukrainian grains to go out the Black Sea and that will be an important thing to look forward to. Back to you Ranger Doug.
1: I think that's a great comment. And uh, I look for China to be very deft in how it positions itself to pressure various countries to acquiesce in terms of getting food. And when you combine what they've done so far with Belt and Road, I see a very sophisticated play lining up where Russia has been the blunt instrument to perhaps uh, uncover certain countries that counted on having plenty of food. And now China will be able to perhaps arrange aspects of its balance of payments and condition them on uh, uh, the ability to receive certain amounts of food in various countries. It will always have to then balance the idea, though, that the favorable government that was in place and supported the entry of its Belt and Road process uh, would still be in place after any pressure it sought to wield. So this is going to be a very interesting play. Would any of you care to uh, comment on what I've just said? Over, please?
2: I'll say say something about China and the Belt and Road. One of the dimensions or one of the exit ramps for the Belt and Road initiative is Russian roads and uh, rail lines taking Chinese and Central Asian commodities into Western Europe. Who is going to buy those things from uh, through Russia? So I think uh, that big aspect of the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, pretty much in question right now. Back to you, Andrew, Doug.
1: Yes, and just to further elucidate, the Chinese have taken in a concept that uh, is very old, but they've made it new by invigorating this idea of what they call a Belt and Road Initiative, which allows them to create relationships with various countries to have a maritime and a land transport method for passing goods and services through the area, but also loaning money and creating an obligation on the part of certain countries to become indebted to them. And although this uh, belt and road physical aspect is more appropriate to the Eurasian landmass, they've actually begun to get countries in Central and South America, Africa, and elsewhere involved in the same idea to take their money, and allow them to then create transportation aspects, including seaports, roads, railroads. And they have an idea that they can begin to pioneer an actual effective railway all the way from China to England, Paris, whatever, and thus begin to dominate Europe without having to go to sea. In other words, by a multi-gauge, very large railway system, essentially to assume control of the world Eurasian landmass and uh, gain aspects of what uh, the uh, geographer Halford Mackinder would have said to us in the last part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century about uh, he or they who can control Western Europe can control the world island, and who controls the world island, i.e. Eurasia, can thus dominate the world. So uh, let's move on then to our final question. What do we think we can look forward to in the coming weeks? And that will be, first, the province of Jason. Jason, over to you.
4: Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, We're going to see continued fighting um, across the front, nothing particularly decisive. Uh, It is a grind. I wouldn't call it a long war, but it's definitely a grind. And what will be interesting to watch is the competition between Russian firepower and mass destruction and, and their kinetic approach to warfare and some of the precision that will come from the weapon systems that the West is supplying to Ukraine. And uh, that will be uh, an interesting uh, duel to watch as precision uh, matches up against a mass. So we'll see how that develops. Uh, potentially, we'll see some movement in the Black Sea as Russia maneuvers to try and loosen sanctions by opening up some limited access so that some of that grain harvest can get out. Uh, that will be interesting to watch in how Putin leverages that to perhaps uh, portray Russia in a more positive light than it's been portrayed lately. We continue to see a slow trickle of weapon systems uh, into Ukraine from Western Europe and, and uh, the United States. Uh, But I believe that material support from Western Europe will begin to wane as summer moves on into fall uh, because if you're in charge in in Germany uh, or some of those other countries in the EU right now, you've got a massive burden to fund social programs in those countries, and you don't have the cash on hand to increase defense spending uh, in accordance with the NATO SOP and also continue to fund weapon shipments to Ukraine in any kind of wholesale fashion. Uh, and then you'll see the EU and Western Europe start to struggle even more with uh, the cost of energy and figuring out how they're going to continue to prosper economically uh, in line of the changing conditions there.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Great answer. Brian, over to you on that, please.
2: Uh, one thing to look for is how each side replenishes its frontline troops. As Dave noted, uh, they're taking very heavy casualties. Zelensky said 100 KIAs a day in the East. Uh, It's probably more for Russia. Who can replenish that? Russia is reluctant to go deep into its draft. Uh, uh, They're probably not going to be reliable troops. It would spawn protests, and I believe there is a law that says that conscripts cannot be forced to serve in BTG combat units. Uh, Of course, laws in Russia tend to be bent when Putin wants to bend them. Uh, Putin has raised the enlistment age to bring in more troops. There are recruitment stations popping up in major cities and medium-sized cities. Uh, The crowds don't look robust from what I've seen. Ukraine has a draft system and national determination. Uh, There are thousands of foreign troops uh, fighting for it. More can be brought in. Uh, More, I think, will come in willingly, eagerly. Many will have uh, combat experience elsewhere. The battle at Severodonetsk, uh, there are a lot of foreign troops fighting on the Ukrainian side. Uh,
3: Back to you, Ranger Dog.
1: Thank you, Brian. Great observation, and I really appreciate it. So then, Dave, over to you, sir.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, you can probably just pushed the play button on my last five episodes here. Um, we're in for a grinding war of attrition that has been going on ever since the Russians reoriented their main effort in the Donetsk in the south. Uh, I'm there's a axiom about precision, and that is, it's great against point targets. It's not so great against area targets. Um, So, what the Russians are doing is making up whether their PGMs work or not, you know, their aiming point is Severodonetsk or you know, Mariupol. Um, They just go block by block, and accuracy is secondary to effect and they're part of this is just demoralization. So the question is, can they keep what Stalin called you know, quantity having a quality all of its own? Can they keep up the volume of what they need to have to maintain that? Um, I don't know. I know they have a huge stockpile of munitions. As we've all said, one of the challenges is just, just the logistical system delivering them. So, um, so I think it's it's just going to be slow. Um, I think, unfortunately, um, where they stand right now, the advantage is with the Russians because they can decide it's over whenever they want to. The Ukrainians are there toe-to-toe and taking casualties uh, in a defensive position. And the longer it goes on, the less they'll be able to do anything else other than defend. I just want to add one thing about China. Uh, that we talked about. Uh, an interesting figure This that I cited a while ago about food supplies, China gets close to 56% of its maize from Ukraine. And you know, I don't know how much maize they eat there, but I do know it's used for feed. Uh, the Chinese have a lot of pork. Um so I don't know what impact this is gonna have on China. China's having its own internal difficulties right now with the lockdowns for COVID and a bunch of other things. So I do agree that, you know, we're gonna see some serious discussions in capitals throughout the West about how much more are we gonna do. And I'm hoping that the United States can rally and say whatever we need to do. Back to you, Ranger Duck.
1: Thank you, Dave. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, a very productive evening, and we've discussed quite a number of things. Uh, I would simply like to pass the uh, word back to you again for a simple closing statement on each of your parts, and we'll keep the same order that we did in this last question. So, Jason, how about a closing statement from you, sir?
4: Uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, Russia started this situation, this war in Ukraine and uh, The West would do well to maintain its resolve Uh, as inconvenient and expensive as that may seem. It's far cheaper to do that now than it will be to try and and, uh, stop further aggression in the future. Thanks.
1: Great, Jason. Thank you very much. Brian, over to you.
2: I think in coming weeks and months, uh, the food crisis we've mentioned is going to overshadow the war, perhaps tremendously. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. I hope it does not change the resolve of Western states to support Ukraine, Uh, and I don't think it will, but uh, boy, I would hate to see the Ukrainians lose out support um, in coming weeks, in coming months. There's a, a very vital war going on here. It's one of the most important wars since World War II. A lot of things around the world are at stake. And the resolve has to be uh, kept, too. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Brian. Dave, then over to you, sir.
3: I'll just tie a couple of things together that my really lucid colleagues brought out. And that is, you know, the world's watching, not just to see the outcome of the war, but to see what it means when a democratic state is attacked by an autocracy and other democracies come to its aid. And this is a real test of the West. Uh, China's watching very carefully, I'm sure. Um, Obviously, the Russians are watching. The Iranians are watching. Because this is, in my view, a moment like if we stood up um, when Germany went into Poland. It would be a very different world now if we'd done something. uh, And there are all sorts of reasons why we couldn't. But this is that kind of moment where I'm a cynical idealist, and I don't want to wax on about patriotism or anything else. But this is a moment when the world's patriotic democratic states stand up for freedom and push back on the you know the worst angels of our nature and let the better angels come to the fore. Back to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Gentlemen, that was uh, quite the evening, and I can't thank you enough. Uh, For my closing statement, I would just like to say what an honor it is to do something like this with each of you and the others that join us every week. Thank you for bringing the best that you can marshal as far as thoughts and ideas and uh, keeping the program really firmly oriented on the center line, which gives people facts and opinions that, that actually hew very close to reality. I think you've done a wonderful job of highlighting some very serious issues and, uh, I feel very comfortable that we have, in the course of the programs now, 16 that we've done on this subject, uh, were we to go back and begin to analyze those programs, we would actually see that things we predicted have developed and that we have adequately prepared uh, a listening audience uh, to understand the ramifications of this fight. It's going to affect the world in very serious ways. And there are a number of organizations out there who wish many of us a great deal of harm Those that we don't mention that envision the world, for instance, of a 700 million population and so forth, which is the driving feature of certain organizations. If we have 8 billion people in the world, how can we ever get to 700 million unless there is a substantial population decline or substantial death caused by war, pestilence, or otherwise? We've just come through a very awful COVID and other disease epidemic. We haven't seen a very formidable response to that because it only took the form of vaccinations rather than treatment. War is one of those things that demands not only treatment, but vaccination as well. In other words, a way to ensure that it doesn't happen again while treating the symptoms uh, as they're underway. As practitioners of the military art, I know we're all uh, very well versed in how we do that. But uh, unfortunately for us, as well as many others, the strategic aspect has to be supplied by civilians who really know how to employ military forces to achieve their desired aims. Hopefully, we in the United States can improve at that, and uh, I know we four would devote ourselves to enlightening officials so that they may be able to do that in years to come. Again, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me tonight, and we can't thank you enough for being part of our Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. I know General Grange is very appreciative of what we're doing. We had a short conversation this week. He's very busy elsewhere, but uh, I know that when he can be back, he will be back, and again, he thanks you as well as I do. Gentlemen, thank you very much. As practitioners of the military art, I know we're always first to look to military things to solve the crisis. And in the case of this ongoing war, it's interesting to see how many other aspects of what we call the instruments of national power, things like diplomacy, information, and economics are collaborating with the military aspect to make this a very rich tapestry from which people are, I think, drawing new lessons about war and war fighting. Many more people that were never involved in considering what was going on in the various wars are now very aware of what's happening here. It'll be interesting to see how warfare may change over time. It also will be very interesting to see how this war terminates and in whose favor. The thing that we have to consider is that many of the non-military features will be required to keep the world in balance once the fighting is over. I would like to make sure that everyone understands that, uh, we represent veterans first, obviously our service people and our citizens. This is a program that stays away from partisan politics because that way the audience is comfortable listening to what we say and learns and learning is what's most important to developing a country and perhaps more than our country that understands the way these things interact, uh, to affect our lives and the lives of future generations. We were fortunate tonight to have wonderful guests we've had before, Dr. Dave Johnson, Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, myself, Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I'm just a dealer in this card game. Please consider subscribing to our podcast. We are on 12-plus uh, platforms at this point, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, our own RSS feed, and many other places. We do not discuss any classified information because to do so would violate our terms. Obviously. Uh, We're interested only in producing our opinions from open source material you could read yourself. We spend a lot of time analyzing these pieces and come up with the best program we can. Nothing official is ever used in production of this program. The points of view are all of those of the individuals on the program. We are a part of the Veterans Broadcast Network. We have another program out there. It's called Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scrogan. He's an aviator who had a serious helicopter crash at night during the Iraq war. He lost his leg. He's recovered. He almost died in that accident and afterward in the hospital. He's become a fantastic programmer, interviewer, a super athlete, a super hunter, and he has uh, really enlightening interviews with members of the community that he selects each week. Very interesting program on Monday nights. Please don't forget to listen to Patrick. Patrick. General Grange has not been with us for a while. He's busy doing other things. He will be back at some point. We wish him and his organization the best, and we will carry on until he is able to join us again. This is Ranger Doug at the Veterans Broadcast Network with our 31st program, the 16th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. And I am out for the evening. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Ranger Doug out.
0: Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.